What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. If you're growing your agility and your learning capacity, then you can make more and better moves than if you accept the status quo or don't challenge your thinking or that of your employer. Just like an acrobat. Falling off the trapeze now and then is part of it. But if you're strong, flexible and confident, you can always get up and move on. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Why should you think about proactively disrupting your own career? Well, the chances are that if you don't, something else, technology, a merger, economic shifts, will likely disrupt your career for you. Read and ride the waves or risk being upended by them. It's widely accepted that careers today will be anything but linear or only within one company. So today we're going to get super practical. Just how do you navigate career transitions and reinvent yourself in the new economy? Be that shifting industries, functions, geographies, or returning to work after a hiatus. To address the how, I'm excited to be joined by Claire Harper, an expert in career transitions. Claire has spent more than 20 years coaching and training individuals across the globe. She is the author with Antoine Terrard of Disrupt Your Career, a practical guide that draws lessons from more than 50 professionals who have undergone massive transformation. Prior to becoming a career coach, Claire held talent and general management roles for Egon Zender, Louis Vuitton, and John Swire in the UK and Asia. She publishes regularly on the INSEAD Knowledge Blog and holds an MBA from INSEAD and a BAMA from the University of Cambridge. Claire, thank you for joining me. Welcome to 97% Effective. Michael, it's such a pleasure to be here, and I love the title of this podcast. I have spent my life being probably not even 97% effective, but it's a wonderful notion. Clients, Claire, rave about your ability to draw out and assemble compelling stories about them. Be that stories to impress recruiters or simply to feel proud of. So I want to turn this on you. What's one brief compelling story that we should know about you, Claire? I've grown up an outsider and I think in the end I've managed to make a virtue of it. 
I've spent my life from very, very young. I grew up in the States speaking three different languages. I spent my time fitting in or trying to fit in and understanding languages and cultures and all those details that distinguish us from each other. And I got into this paradox of wanting to belong and maybe not quite belonging and played with that and learned to observe from an external viewpoint and turned that into a fascination for people. And this in itself led to work across 17 different countries, four continents, eight languages. And now I guess I can fit in everywhere and have friends all over the place, but I belong nowhere. That can be mostly a good thing. It's, it's fun to be adaptable and flexible, but occasionally it can be lonely. And I guess this allows me to empathize more strongly than many and to enjoy life as a coach who sees things that others don't see and also says what others would not dare to say. I love that introduction. I didn't know that about you, that uh, you grew up in the States. And the, the word that comes to mind, which is a theme you use throughout your book, uh, Disrupt Your Career, is mm. career agility. So uh, what better than to have a coach <laughs> who has lived all over the world and been very agile outsider, insider herself. You have worked with so many diverse clients across the globe through transitions. Is there still a pervasive myth that you encounter and, and, and want to correct as we kick off here? Those that I hear most often in my work with people at various career crossroads and, and transitions is quite simply that it's not easy to change career and that it might even be perceived as wrong to make a change. And I think those two things that people treat as facts that making a big career transition will just be really tough and difficult and that it might still be perceived as inconsistent or, you know, not sustainable or all kinds of opinions that might come from recruiters or, or future managers and leaders. It's just not true. It's up to us to take hold of the narrative and decide how we want to present the changes that we make. And, and that is definitely the the theme of your book and the stories that you share. I wanted to ask here, you know, if we're honest as as coaches uh, who work with professionals at different stages of their career, we know that most clients come to us when they have pain, uh, oh, yeah. when they have acute pain, the loss of a job, they suddenly need a new one, intense frustration, or disruption is eminent. The company has been taken over, their boss gets swapped out. And they typically don't come when things are kind of smooth sailing and, and calm. So by no means do I want to suggest that, that people are responsible for what gets them into a situation where they're about to be disrupted or they feel that pain. But as, as a career transition coach, is there a top or common, what I would say, avoidable mistake mm. that you see people make? Say something, if they, if they were to roll back 12 to 24 months, they, they should have been doing, but sure. weren't? Definitely. In the end, the reality is that we all need to be constantly managing our career and not just where, when we're in crisis. There's a little model that Antoine and I created, which isn't rocket science, but it's simple and memorable. And that is that where there's a cycle in careers where we've got what we call the four E's. You're either exploring, 
opportunities, uh, new ideas, new dimensions. You're experimenting, actually trying things out. You're engaging into a new role and you're expanding your knowledge, your understanding, your horizons and thinking about what's next. And the reality is that ideally we should be consciously on that cycle. We may be at two separate points. We might be engaging in a new job and already exploring a board position um, in a different sector or with a different sort of emphasis. But the idea is that the more conscious you are about the management of your career all the time, the less difficult it will be to manage it when there is a critical moment. It's easy to say, a little harder to put into action, but as with most things, practice makes perfect and habits can be developed even when we've resisted them or ignored them up till now. The book explores nine different, very diverse transitions mm -hmm. and extracts lessons from the stories of more than 50 individuals. And I want to put this, I know you also work as an academic, but want to kind of openly address a, a, a kind of dig that gets leveled by other academics or readers about books that share and draw lessons from stories. Yep. Even those that you know, case studies, which most business schools do. And, and that complaint very simply is that, Claire, the book is, is mostly about people, a lot of them with privileged backgrounds, elite schooling with a lot of Ivy League, elite MBA programs like NCAD, Wharton, mm -hmm. from which many readers may say, I, I don't come from that background, nor do I benefit from those advantages. How do you address the question here that these stories are lessons you know, may not be relevant to listeners out there? It's such a great question. And it's actually one that we recognized as being important right from the very beginning. And it bothered us too, as we were writing. It's worth saying that since the book was written with nine themes of transition, we've since written almost 40 articles in total, articles or chapters, which cover you know, a greater number, therefore, of transition themes. And actually, just a few months ago, we published an article particularly focused on first-generation graduates and their careers and the extra challenges and barriers that they might face. It's not that they might face, they do face, or they certainly have faced as they've carved out and, and crafted their careers. The other side of that is that, as with any stories, and probably the more so with ours, which are rather complete compared to the stories in many business books and focus on the human, aspects of, of what's being talked about. These stories are actually universal. You know, you could also argue that Greek myths aren't very applicable or relevant to most of us because we're not gods, we don't have wings and we don't fly too close to the sun. But the lessons and the, the, the emotions in those stories are universal and they do apply to everybody. So it's a question I think of being able to be sure that as a writer, you're creating story and content from which it's possible to see where the learning is, where the applicability and relevance actually shows up. And also, you know, the, the, re the reality is that we have covered and continue to cover a broad range of transitions, which don't all necessarily imply that those in them would have come you know, from a background where they grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth. I'm thinking of, you know, moving from the military to leadership or from being an elite sports person to working in business. Those don't 
necessarily imply financial or social privilege, though they sometimes do, let's be clear. But I think that whatever, uh, identifying your transferable skills, your passions, your ability to deliver value in whatever context you're working in, and all those sorts of things are skills and actions that anybody can use for inspiration, whether they're currently working in a relatively lowly position at a local bank or as a you know, a technician in a vineyard or whatever else. I tried to think of some examples that are, you know, local to where I am today. But the value of developing confidence and pride around the mindset that you've derived as a, as a worker is huge, whatever your level. If you're growing your agility and your learning capacity, then you can make more and better moves than if you accept the status quo or don't challenge your thinking or that of your employer. Is there any other universal or common driver to those who make the very successful transformations or transitions? Sure. So the other framework that we created is one that we call the six C's of career agility. We're talking about commitment, control, curiosity, change agility, connections, and confidence. And we deliberately chose the metaphor of the acrobat because we wanted to think and motivate people around the fact that agility, strength, fitness, and so on can be worked on. So, in fact, it's those who are focused and engaged in the process of managing their career, feeling that they have a responsibility for building it, who are constantly exploring and bringing curiosity to the world of their work, who are coping and developing their capacity to cope with change and all the discomfort associated with that, who are building their networks and creating connections, and finally believing in themselves and their abilities, those people are likely to be increasing their career agility. And that will mean they will generally succeed whatever the transition, and they'll pick themselves up better from times when it might not work out as well as they planned. Just like an acrobat. Falling off the trapeze now and then is part of it. But if you're strong, flexible, and confident, you can always get up and move on. The image of an acrobat. I think that's great. The common questions that I hear and listeners have out there, so I'm almost going to turn this next session into kind of lightning round of things that come up. And mm. the top one, a huge round of layoffs, particularly in the tech and banking sector, mm. that's gone on. So there may be listeners out there who are hearing that. Uh, you and I have seen many cycles of this, so it is not <laughs> particularly new to us. Yeah. But for a younger generation, it is, it is new. So for those out there, pointed question, who have recently been upended or struggling, angry, depressed, what, what is kind of the first thing that they should be doing to get back on their feet? Sure. Well, you know that cliche about taking a deep breath and pausing. It exists for good physiological and neurological reasons, right? You know, literally, the brain will function better and help you with your thoughts if you've actually nourished it with a bit of oxygen first. And so it might feel urgent to get a new job and to be safe and survive, but it's also important to take some time to process what has happened. And the good news is that it's no longer seen as nearly so shameful these days to have lost a job, as the approach that companies have to hiring is so cavalier. <laughs> I mean, you know, who hasn't? When we do classes at business schools or webinars, we always poll the audience to ascertain who has been disrupted at some point in their career. And it's usually over three quarters of the total people there. 
But then, sooner or later, once you've taken your breath, once you've paused, once you've reflected, it is time to get on with the process of exploring options and getting into action. And of course, ideally, the more you've been managing your career up till now, the more likely you are to have connections and inspiration in your network, some sort of idea of your values and purpose that allow you to make good choices and to get started back on the path towards the kind of professional role that you want from now on. And as people get back on their feet mm. and they're looking to make transitions, particularly the, the more disruptive transitions that you speak about in your book, when mm. you're switching industries, you're abroad, you're coming back from maternity leave, not necessarily the ones of staying in your company or industry. What are the most common things that I hear or you see when you go out and, and search on Google is the comment, I'm not getting approached or even selected to interview for roles that I aspire to. Mm. Instead, you're hearing, you know, headhunters or recruiters are trying to find someone who's already been there, done that a couple of years. And so while I might get recruiting offers there for jobs that are below me or that I've already done or still in my same industry, is there a technique or thing that people really should be doing to kind of change that flow of inquiries, more to things that they aspire to versus they've already done? Mm. It's a great question. And there are many different ways we could answer it. We're going to talk a little later on about the roles that organizations and employers can play. But I think what springs to mind initially here is a reminder or a revelation for those who haven't figured this out yet, that the hidden job market is huge and the advertised one is shrinking every day. Um, the latest studies I've seen would suggest that 60 to 70 percent of executive level positions in organizations are not advertised and that many of the ads that you see for jobs for middle to upper level opportunities in organizations are simply talent pipelining. So I think the first thing to do is to remove yourself from the smoke and mirrors of that externally promoted type of recruitment. It doesn't mean that you might not get the job of your dreams via an ad, but it's much more likely that you're going to find a role that is a stretch in terms of your tangible technical experience, i.e. you want to go and do something that you haven't done before, but you feel you have the aptitude to become good at, you're going to be much better off working on your connections and exploring that way than responding to ads. There's a lot more we could go into in some depth that I think that would take us way over on our time. But I think starting by the notion that it's not going to come from responding to an ad, it's going to come from your clarity about what you want to do and why, and finding people that you can trust to transmit that message to and engender conversations that allow some exploring to be done to see where the fit actually might be. So it's finding that hidden job market. I love the way you phrase that and, and being very conscious and deliberate about it. The piece that we alluded to at the beginning, you know, kind of reframing or casting one story in compelling ways. This is a big part of what you do. You have a, a, a podcast that you ran before called Career Quicksilver. That was actually live coaching. People shared their stories and you helped them kind of recast that and repackage it in very compelling ways, uh, both for recruiters or kind of the new areas. Mm. And, and I like a term you used. You said kind of being playful and, and turning kind of messy pieces or what feel like messy pieces into compelling stories. 
Of course, that may be easy for you and, and some <laughs> of our listeners out there, but for, for the majority of people, mm. particularly if you're sitting and trying to talk about yourself, that can be very, very difficult. Obviously, we're not going to walk through that process here, but what is kind of the key to retelling one's story or repackaging it in ways that are effective, efficient, and a critical step mm. that they ought to be doing or an exercise that would help to get them going? Sure. I think there are a few things to say here. First of all, most of us have been raised not to be boastful, right? And so a lot of a lot of um, embarrassment and shame and reticence come around any um, invitation to tell one's story in a positive, proud way. That can be jolly difficult for a lot of people. And one distinction I find helpful to play with when when working with someone on this aspect is, to think about, the first of all, the difference between being proud and being boastful. And also, if you're feeling reticent about saying things like, you know, I achieved this or I did that, if you talk about the pleasure that you derived through achieving this or the satisfaction that you got from, from working on, on that and delivering these things or whatever, those can be helpful things, just as little hints as to how to tweak the experience of telling ourselves, showing up and telling our story. But there are some other things you can do. I mean, ideally, having an external viewpoint is helpful. People can often see our qualities when we don't see them. And, you know, anyone can apply to have a story-loving co story coach like me create something for them. But that can cost money that might not feel easy to spend right now. And I, I can think of some coaches that do this and charge you know, significant five figures. I'm a little cheaper than that, but it's, you know, it's, it's an investment that might not be right for you right now. It can be worth it. As I'm reminded every single time that I see the tears pouring down the faces of those for whom I did it, they feel seen all of a sudden, and they do start to see themselves differently, more powerfully and more confidently. But assuming that most people can't or won't afford to invest big money in that sort of process, what you can actually do as a very reasonable substitute is to ask those around you, those close to you, about what they see. They may not know your professional context all that deeply, but they do know your character. They probably know something about your purpose and your strengths and so on. So if you're willing to take those openly and with gratitude, you can probably work on building a story from there too. Incredibly practical. And again, I will put the show links to Career Quicksilver, where you spend 20 minutes with individuals and kind of transform their stories. And people listening to that can see how it is done and uh, how quick it is <laughs> when an expert coach <laughs> helps you with that process. Sure. Thank you. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. In your book, Claire, you really do look at a, a, a diverse set of individuals and some very distinct segments. You coach everyone from global elite teens, a lot of young individuals you know, who have just finished their MBAs, up to senior C-suite levels. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about some of those segments. If we, if we first start kind of with the, the teen or the university grad kind of in our 20-somethings. A, a question that I'd love to raise to you as a career coach is this one around passion and loving what you do. This is often used as a cliche, 
do what you love, follow your passions. But a question is kind of, you know, is that easy to detect earlier in your career or does that matter? Um, there is another school of thought that would say, sure, that would be great. But there's another school that says it's actually dangerous career advice. And I would count myself a little bit in the second camp that mm -hmm. early on, you want to get these valuable marketable skills that we grow to love things after we dive into them. And that may be somewhat from my Asian upbringing or Cal Newport's book way back. So good they can't ignore you. <laughs> but because you coach a lot of young individuals as part of your practice, what views or experience do you have on this question about should one follow their passion? I think it's a brilliant question. And I suspect that the answer is maybe, but um, but I am <laughs> going to come down in a in a particular direction. And I think that in the end, it might be more a question of following your values than it might be of following your passion. And I'm not going to pretend to have that as an original idea. I think I first heard it from Mark Cuban of the Shark Tank and, you know, the serial mm. investor and the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. He put it that way. And I really felt that that clicked. You know, relatively clearly, whatever work we do, there's always going to be an ideological side of it in some way. It might be big tobacco. It might be big pharma. You might have strong feelings about those things. It might be, you know, some wonderful global charity that does extraordinary work. And so we can aim to align with that ideological side of whatever we do as much as possible. But there's always going to be hard work and skill acquisition, especially in the early years. And passion alone is never, ever going to cut it in that particular respect. Here's an example. You might love making ceramic pots. You might not be particularly good at it, but you love it. Nevertheless, it's pretty unlikely that however passionate you are about making pots, you're not going to make a living from doing that. However, you could use this passion that you have as a, as a starting point for a reflection. What is it I like about ceramics? Is it craftsmanship? If it is, go and work where a company values detail and originality in what they do. Is it about uniqueness and the possibility of that lump of clay? Think about joining a startup or a company run by someone unusual, and so on. And don't join the company that makes second-rate products dressed up as top quality. So keeping your values foremost can be a useful compass to have going alongside and at the same time at a useful checkpoint before any big career change decision. That's a brilliant reflection. I like the reframing there around values and being words you use, being playful, being curious, seeing where uh, some of those insights can lead you as you think about career moves and, and jobs you take on. If we swing, Claire, to the other extreme, the most kind of senior execs or those who are, who are further along in their career, we'd also be remiss to say <laughs> that bias doesn't exist gender bias, racial bias, and even a growing amount that's at least talked about in certain sectors out in Silicon Valley, for example, around ageism. Executives that you work with who, who deal with that, is that simply being aware of that or is there a creative way to kind of head that off or deal with it as you're kind of job seeking? Mm. Bias is real, isn't it? Still. I'm staggered at how little progress we've made. And I dare say that our grandmothers and, and mothers who burned their bras in the 60s would be horrified if they saw just how little progress we've made since then. And I guess that, you know, a lot of that has been the just be aware of it 
attitude. Oh, diversity. Yes, we've ticked that box. Off we go. Let's go back to our biases and get on with life. I won't go much further down that rabbit hole or I'll probably never come out. In the meantime, how can we be creative and avoid this? How do my clients tackle this? How do I encourage them to think? I guess a lot of it is about Again, coming back to story, getting your own story right and showing all the counter evidence that you've accumulated or that you know about or that you believe to be true and wise in whatever particular dimension of bias you're looking at. So, for example, you know, there's a there's an ageism cliche that would say, you know, old people can't learn. And, you know, old people in traditional corporate terms are probably anybody over the age of 45, sadly. But there's actually interesting research coming out currently that shows, in fact, that the ability to learn is simply not diminished with age. And that even on the dimension of tech, for example, a motivated older person will be no less able than a motivated young person to learn and adapt. But I think it's the motivation that counts for such an awful lot. So keeping up your confidence is crucial. Seeking out places and contexts that do value your contribution, regardless of whatever aspect of diversity you're you're fitting into or getting stuck into, can be very boosting and great to refer to. Again, just applying two ads is going to make the challenge bigger for you if what you want to do is to change your job. Whereas exploring your networks constantly and finding allies along the way will support you in the future. Now, in the context of finding allies, I'm personally not particularly convinced of the institution that has arisen of employee resource groups. I think they often smack more of box ticking than they do of genuine service. But you can always take the opportunity to look for and ask for directions to others like you, whatever your difference might be, and find ways to support each other in all you undertake. So those themes of, of, of networking, building relationships, and how you cast your story clearly are big factors there um, with individuals that you work with. And to go back to a theme that we have talked multiple times here around networking, utilizing or leveraging connections that you may have, and these pop up in almost every story that, that comes forward in the book. Of course, we know that paying attention to your network, that hidden job market that you refer to is where most jobs come from. Yet, people that vitamin, that exercise daily, they don't do it, even though there's stunning evidence to show it really does drive careers. Mm. I think there are three things we could say here without getting lost in the detail. The first is, you know, this word networking, it tends to induce all kinds of, you know, sweat and trembling and and all kinds of nervous reactions in so many people. In the end, what we're talking about is humans connecting with humans. That's all it is. It's very, very simple. And if we can find a way to remove the drama of this thing we call networking, If we can find a way to remove those sort of seedy connotations of, you know, a hotel conference room on a Thursday night with 20 people who don't know each other, drinking cheap beer that's got a bit warm and everybody's a bit nervous and thrusting business cards under everybody else's nose, that doesn't work. And frankly, I don't, I think since the pandemic, actually, it doesn't really happen very much anymore. There's a huge opportunity here. We've been deprived on all kinds of fronts of connecting with other human beings. 
why don't we celebrate the fact that we can now connect with other human beings and we can do it in whatever way we want. We can do it, you know, speak to the person sitting next to you on the bus. See what that generates. It might just be a pleasant conversation. You don't know where it might go, but if you don't speak to them, you'll never know. So removing the drama, seeing that it's actually simply connecting humans with humans. And there's nobody who's ever described it better, I think, than Keith Ferrazzi, who wrote a book called Never Eat Alone. And everybody should read it from the age of 10 upwards. So it's almost like, let's just ban the word networking and, and kind of reframe it and think about the word you use there, making connections. Yeah. Lovely. I mean, I'll t I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to share with you my really, really sophisticated management and leadership theory for the whole world. It's very simple. Companies are made up of human beings making products or services to sell to human beings for the gain, financial and social of human beings. That's it. Why don't we just be kind, generous and thoughtful as we do that? And things might go quite well. Well said. And you have led right into the next question, which is around companies. And, and you say in the book, takes two to tango. We very much in, in our interview here been focused on what individuals can do. And I think both of us yeah. are of the mind that we should be very proactive around our own careers. But you do in the book, and I think rightly so, rail on the state of career management from the company perspective. Um, and in fact, in each chapter uh, and the conclusion, you highlight what companies should be doing. For organizations and the leaders of those organizations out there who are listening, do you have a top prescription about how companies should be helping, thinking, benefiting from the career management of their employees? Absolutely. First of all, it's worth remembering that generally people don't leave companies, they leave bosses. And so each individual one of us, whatever organization we're in or involved with, um, can reduce the you know, potential financial and emotional cost of having people leave if we're more thoughtful about what we can do to help individuals through their own career journeys. So I would say there are two main areas that leaders can think about. And it doesn't matter how much of a leader you are. You might just be supervising one person. But when you think about the talent acquisition, so the recruitment of people, the talent or career management of each individual, with regard to hiring, recruitment, take the risk of hiring people that have the right mindset because that will more than make up for lack of experience. Anything technical or knowledge-based can be learned, but an agile mindset, an open mindset, a, a change and future-focused mindset simply cannot be learned, or not to the same extent. Try to avoid the temptation to hire to clone the previous incumbent and think about creating a tribe or a community of great people rather than just a company. And on the other hand, understand that career conversations are crucial and should be part of the environment in your workplace from the very outset. There should be no taboos. And ideally, a boss should simply see her or his employee as being lent to them for a period, a little bit like parents would ideally see their children. And that their job is to help them grow their wings, to fly beyond and above the role that they're filling now. This is not HR's responsibility. It is yours as a leader, however senior or junior you might be. For those out there who want to find the company cultures that do this well, is there, companies will say everything. <laughs> we, we both know this, that they... Oh, companies are perfect. They do diversity. They do growth. Yeah, they will yeah, say yeah, everything. Absolutely. 
is, is there something or a way that you have found that, that, that individuals can can look for signs that companies actually walk the talk? Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a great question. So I would say that yes, absolutely. If we're buying into the idea that you're more likely to find your your next opportunity by talking to people about what they do and how they might help you to get to where you think you want to be then necessarily we're imagining that there are going to be conversations and exchanges of ideas and, and information along the way. And I would say that whether you're having a formal interview process through an advertised job or whether you're networking your way into a role, showing curiosity about the experience of the individuals that you speak to, you know, asking them, what's it been like for you? What sort of experience did you have before you got into this role? What sort of mindset was expected of you? How have you been doing with your own career? How, how much support have you been getting in that respect? And, you know, the curiosity that you display in that particular direction is going to get you answers. They're going to give you very clear clues. You might be talking to somebody at company ABC thinking that company ABC is just going to be perfect for you because of stuff you've read. And then you find that you talk to three different people in that organization and they all say, you know, I love, I love the, you know, the purpose of what we do, but actually I've had a series of bosses who just don't really seem to care about my career. You know, that, that might be not what you want to hear, but it would be definitely data that you should be paying attention to as you make your, as you make your search and you, you explore what, what is really going to import, uh, be important and crucial to you as you go on. Claire, selecting the right career coach, the field of coaching, as we know, is exploding. Coaches now are, unfortunately, a dime a dozen. Oh, yeah. Very little accreditation in this field. And so it's quite easy to Google or find a list of coaches, but getting a highly qualified one that's, that's right for you is tougher. What should people look for or, or ask for you know, when selecting a career coach? It's a great question. Um, I think the first thing to do is quite simply to recognize that coaching and a coaching um, engagement with any individual is never only about the presenting problem, as therapists might say. So I think, first of all, you might well be at a career crossroads. Um, but does that mean you're looking for a coach who's only a career coach? I think that's that's something to think about. If what you want is technical, you know, if what you want is a few tweaks to your CV and some advice on, you know, how to make your LinkedIn profile a bit more convincing, there are consultants for that. So seeing the difference between the technical help and deep questioning around who you are, what your values are, deciphering your experience, that's really important. You might want and need both, and you might not. Um, that's something that you may figure out on your own, and you may figure out as you have conversations with potential coaches. So I would say if you are going for coaching, above all, you're going to need to be willing to put in your work and go deep. And so for that reason, it all ends up about being about fit. You know, don't sign up for anything or anyone without having experienced a session with the coach. There's nothing like experiencing their coaching style as opposed to them telling you about it and what you're going to do. Excellent advice. And, and since we're on that topic, you, know, you talk about the technical, the holistic approach. What are the kind of range of services that, that you provide? So at this stage, I tend not to get involved much in the technical side. Either I have people that I send clients to if they want a, a CV retune, 
or I'll give them some guidelines. But really, you know, my my fun and where I get to play in the most valuable way with clients is much more in that deep questioning, the the establishment of, of clarity about values and what's really important to them, helping them to explore, helping them to be bold and brave in their exploration and, and also helping them to respond in a corporate setting to assessments and all those sorts of developmental tools, which I know how to administer and I'm qualified to administer. But the most fun comes with, you know, what do you do with that? Any profiling tool, any psychometric evaluation is only as valuable, I believe, as the conversation that it engenders. And that's that's where I love to play. Claire, it's been a fantastic discussion today. Has there been any important question that I haven't asked uh, that you want to address here as we come to an end? Well, you've brought brilliant questions. I'll say that. But I'm, I'm thinking there's maybe one thing it might just be worth sharing. It'll be familiar to you as well. But people often ask me, you know, should I do A or Z? Should I go for black or white? Obviously, those are metaphors, but you get the point. Should I make a radical change or should I stay where I am? And the truth is that the answer usually lies somewhere around M on the alphabet scale or gray on the color scale. And the beauty and the answers often lie in between the solutions, the radical solutions that we imagine. So I guess while I am a fan of and a proponent of radical change, radical, all kinds of things, it's worth remembering that the answers are often in the spaces and the, you know, the shadowy areas in between those that we can already see. And so the fun and the, and then the reward comes from digging a bit deeper in and playing in those unseen spaces. So there is beauty in gray. I love <laughs> the, the image that that's, that's bringing up. Claire, it's been fantastic to have you. Claire Harbour is the author of Disrupt Your Career, Career Transition Specialist. Claire, how do pe people best reach you and see your work? Well, I know you're going to publish notes, but um, if you Google me, you'll find there aren't that many people, if, if any, in this field who have my name. So it's fairly easy to find me. I'm on the usual socials. You can buy the book or listen to the podcast starting from our website called disrupt-your-career.com. You can listen to the podcast Career Quicksilver in all the usual places. And you can find me and some stories about me and my clients on my eponymous website, www.clareharbert.com. And I look forward to connections that emerge from this. Claire, thank you so much for your time. Wonderful to have you. Michael, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.